Laura came to see me with a long history of depression and anxiety. She worried about everything, how people would treat her, whether she would have money to pay her bills, her job, whether she would be maintained on her job, whether things would go well at work, whether her friends really liked her. She had chronic fears of loneliness and abandonment. She was most terrified of losing people close to her, and so she never let people get too close. She was married but unhappy. She had children but always in conflict. She had been tried on a variety of medications, but all with minimal impact. She was unhappy with her life, her circumstances. There was an undercurrent of anger brewing under the surface in all of her answers and her demeanor. When I asked her if she believed in God, she gave me a look mixed with hurt and anger and said, don't you dare talk to me about God. See, she said she didn't believe in him, but she was angry at him. She felt her entire life she had been persecuted, punished, and beat up by God. Whenever something bad in her life happened, she saw God's hand hurting her. She never allowed herself to get her hopes up because if anything was going good, she just anticipated at any moment God would intervene to snatch the goodness from her life. As we explored her life history, she told me that when she was seven, her mother got killed in a car accident. She cried, cried hard as she told me about her mother. She still was raw and hurting in her heart and told me that she still missed her mommy. She told me about the funeral sitting on the front pew as the preacher went through the eulogy. And then she had anger in her eyes as she looked at me and she said, I remember the preacher looking down eye to eye with me and said, Jesus took your mommy to be with him. And she looked at me and said, but I needed my mommy. Jesus took your mommy to be with him. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, they are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. If you have a war over argument, pretension, knowledge, and thought, where is the war being fought? The battlefield is in our mind. The battlefield is in our mind. What kind of God was presented to Laura? What happened in Laura's mind when that preacher said, Jesus took your mommy to be with him. It was hardened. Her heart became a stronghold of bitterness, resentment, and anger. Our talk this morning is demolishing Satan's strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We demolish everything that blocks our understanding of God. We demolish everything that interferes with our union with God. Satan's stronghold is in our mind. Satan's stronghold is in our mind. As we discussed this morning, Satan got his foothold into the mind of humanity by telling lies, lies about God. For those who weren't here last night in our first talk this morning, I'll, I'll review this very quickly. Imagine those of you who are married in a healthy marriage, someone comes to you 
and lies to you about your spouse that your spouse is having an affair. They're not having an affair, but you don't know it. This is a lie. If you believe the lie, does something in your heart change? You see, lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Adam and Eve believed lies that God was not the being he really is. They believed Satan's distortions, Satan's misrepresentations, Satan's mis- mischaracterizations of God, and they broke the circle of love and trust. They no longer loved and trusted God because they believed lies about him. Uh, lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. I no longer trust you, God. I believe lies. I don't believe you're really out for my best interest. Therefore, I'm afraid of you. And because I don't trust you to watch out for me, I've got to watch out for me. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness result in destructive acts, what we call sins. And destructive acts result in damage to mind, character, and body, a terminal condition. Without divine intervention, we will die. And the Bible says darkness covered the people, gross darkness the people. Darkness about what? Darkness about God. Lies were told about God, his methods, his character, his principles. Our minds have become filled with lies, fear, and selfishness. Satan's strong hold is on our minds. But light has come into the world to dispel the darkness. God sent his son to break the power of Satan, to demolish Satan's strongholds, to set our minds free. Christ said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now think about this. We're in a war, wartime footing. What kind of gates, what kind of weapons are gates? Do you see people running into battle carrying gates? No, gates are defensive weapons. Satan is on the defense. Satan took the minds of humanity by deceit, and he is trying to hold our minds with lies. But lies cannot stand against the truth. The truth that Christ brought will demolish Satan's strongholds and set our hearts and minds free. We are on the offensive. God's healing starts right where Satan's attacks began. He lied about God. God's healing starts with the truth about God. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. The truth demolishes the lies about God, wins us back to trust, and when we actually trust him, we open the heart And the Holy Spirit is poured out to regenerate, to recreate, to restore us back into loving beings that God originally created us to be. But it all starts with the truth. I was serving as the division psychiatrist for the 3rd Infantry Division at Fort Stewart, Georgia, when Sergeant Jones came to see me. He'd been suffering for four years with nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive thoughts, inability to sleep well at night, anxiety, depression, irritability, work problems, marriage problems. You see, four years prior, he was the commander of an M1, A1, Abrams tank attached to division, stationed in Saudi Arabia about to invade Kuwait, associated with Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He was known in his unit as a Christian. He had gone throughout his unit giving Bible studies and representing himself as a man of God. And when it became evident that their unit was going to be given orders to invade Kuwait, he went to his battalion chaplain and asked for some holy oil and took that oil and made little tiny crosses all around the hull of his tank and dedicated himself, his men, and his tank to God and asked that God would use him in a mighty way in the upcoming battle. 
The day of the invasion came, and as they were checking their equipment, Sergeant Jones' commander discovered that the commander's radio was not working. The company commander needed a radio so he could talk to battalion command as well as give directions to the units under his command. So he ordered Sergeant Jones to give up his radio to put in the commander's tank. Sergeant Jones attempted to refuse that order, realizing that he would be essentially deaf on the battlefield, would not be able to be in communication with his own troops. He was threatened with arrest and court-martial. So he gave up his radio. After night fell and they mounted their equipment, you remember it was a night invasion, and they checked their nods, their night optical devices, their night vision equipment, he discovered his were non-operational. He would now be deaf and blind on the battlefield. He quickly contacted his command and requested permission to not enter the battle as he could no longer engage the enemy because he could not tell friend from foe. His request was denied. He was told even though he could no longer fire on the enemy, he could at least draw fire away from the tanks that could. They entered the battle that night. Very shortly after invading Kuwait, they came under, under fire. There was tank fire, mortar fire, artillery fire, helicopter gunship fire, small arms fire. The night was ablaze with thunderous noise, exploding shells, vehicle, and the screams of men. Everyone in his tank panicked. They thought they were going to die. Four years later, he came to see me. And over the course of several sessions, I became acquainted with Sergeant Jones, his passions, his beliefs, and his core conflict. You see, he believed that God had abandoned him and let him down and left him as a sheep to the slaughter alone on the battlefield. I began to ask him some questions. You were a Christian, yes. You made a public display of your Christianity, putting little tiny crosses all over your hall, dedicating yourself, your men, and your tank to God. Yes. You went into the battle essentially deaf and blind into combat modern warfare. Yes. And not one bullet, piece of shrapnel, or shell touched your tank. He said, yes. I said, well, it sounds to me a whole lot like Daniel in the lion's den. His eyes popped open. His mouth dropped open. And he dropped his head into his hands and began to sob. He said, I never thought about it like that before. He left my office a changed man. He called me a week later telling me he was feeling so much better he didn't think he needed to see me anymore. <laughs> I followed up with him 18 months later and he had left the army. He had uh, finished his college degree. He had no more nightmares, no more flashbacks. The depression had gone, no more anxiety. He was teaching at a local high school. He was an elder in his church, and he and his wife were getting along famously. What made the difference? He had believed a lie and failed, that God had failed to answer his prayer, that God had let him down, that God was not the kind, gentle, trustworthy being that we know he is. Sergeant Jones now realized the truth. God had miraculously intervened and answered his prayer. The stronghold of Satan had been demolished. The truth had set him free. Today I want to teach you how to engage successfully in spiritual warfare. How to free your minds and experience God's healing. How to demolish Satan's strongholds. In order to do this, we must know several things. One, we must know the battlefield. One, we must know the battlefield. Satan's stronghold is on our minds. We identified last night in our talk last night God's original design for the mind. What happened when sin entered that damaged our mind? If you, did, if you weren't here from that talk, it's going to be available on your church website, uh, forestlakechurch.org, and I encourage you to see that. However, 
we have another chance this afternoon on our talk on depression. We're actually going to be talking about the neurobiology of your brain, the mind, the brain, and the body, and how your decisions, how your thinking actually affects the wiring of your brain, and how that actually affects the health of your body, and how that reacts back upon your brain and your mind. That will be our talk at 4 o'clock this afternoon. I hope to see you there. Two, we must know, so one, we must know the battlefield, our minds. Two, we must know God's weapons, which destroy Satan's strongholds. And God's weapons are the truth. John 8, 32, the truth will set you free. Truth destroys lies. We must know God's weapons, the truth. And love. And if you were here this morning, we talked about the law of love and the law of liberty. So the big three, God's truth, love, and freedom. Truth, love, and freedom, the weapons of God. And three, we must understand Satan's strategies and recognize his attacks. We must know the battlefield. We must know God's weapons. We must understand Satan's strategies and recognize his attacks. And today I'm going to examine several strategies that Satan, Satan has and uses to destroy our minds. Satan's common goal, the goal that Satan has, is to close the avenue to God. That's his goal. He wants to shut down the avenue between you and God. He wants to intercept truth. He wants, he wants to stop our ability to comprehend. He wants to cut off our ability to experience God's love. In, in order for the mind to be healed, the truth has to be understood and internalized and brought in to the heart. Satan wants to destroy the very faculties of your mind, the faculties God created and endowed you with. Uh, He wants to destroy those faculties which recognize and respond to truth. And those faculties we talked about last night are the faculties of reason and your conscience. Those two faculties together are your good judgment. And it's the avenue through which God is pouring out his light, his truth, to free our minds. Satan wants to neutralize and damage those. And we're going to explore seven specific strategies that the devil uses to damage the mind. Attack number one, lies about God. This was his attack on the angelic host in heaven. He lied about God. This is what he did in Eden. He lied about God. Lies believe we just went through, sever the, the connection of love and trust with God. And we see God now as severe, arbitrary, unforgiving, cruel, a God who takes pleasure in meeting out stern justice, a God who must be pled with by a loving fellow member of the Godhead who will protect us from the severe and cruel treatment of this God. If we believe those lies... Love and trust gets broken. Fear and selfishness gets incited. We close the heart and we cannot be healed. The lies shut down the heart to the movement of the Spirit of God. And instead of actually open the heart for healing, what we do is we create schemes to be protected from God. Well, what do I mean? Well, just imagine that you're sick. You're really sick. You're cramping. You're feverish. You're feeling bad. You know there's something wrong. And so you go to the doctor. And when the doctor comes in to examine you, as he steps into the room, you quickly shove your perfectly healthy brother in front of you and say, would you please examine him in my stead? Do we go to God and say, on the day of judgment, we're so thankful God won't be examining us. He's going to be examining our perfectly healthy brother Jesus in our stead. If you shoved your healthy brother in front of the doctor while you were in the exam room, why would you do that? What does that indicate? Doesn't it indicate that you're afraid of the doctor? Why do we want Jesus to be shoved in front of the Father in our stead? What did David pray? Search me, O Lord, and see the wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. We are sick. 
We don't need to be running from the doctor. We need to be running to the doctor so he can heal us and restore us. We need to be praying, don't simply look at how good Jesus is. Look at how sick I am and take the life of Christ and reproduce it in me. Defense against lie number one. We must examine the truth about God as revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the touchstone. Jesus is the lens. Jesus is the most clear revelation of the Father. Don't use the Old Testament system and use that system to try to understand Jesus and what he's doing. You look at Jesus to try to understand the old system. Jesus is the lens, the clear piece, the, 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 the focal point that we see the truth about God through. Jesus said, Philip, how can you ask me to show you the Father? Don't you know me, Philip? Have you not seen? Have you not, do you not realize if you've seen me, you have seen the Father? How did Jesus treat the woman who was caught in adultery? Neither do I condemn you. Do you realize those are the words of the Father? Jesus said, I speak nothing of my own. I speak only what the Father gives me to speak. The Father was saying, neither do I condemn you. When you sin, do you hear the Father saying, neither do I condemn you? How did Jesus treat Judas? Did Jesus know that Judas was going to betray him? And how did, how did he treat him? Did he get down on his knees and wash his feet? If you've ever betrayed Jesus... He'll get down on his knees and wash your feet as well. Do you realize that's the Father in action? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do we know? Well, Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born. Who's the child that was born? Who's that child? Jesus. His, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you realize when you see Jesus, you see the Father? Attack number one, lies about God. Attack number two, antithetical beliefs. These are believing two things that are mutually exclusive, meaning if one of them is true, by definition, the other one has to be false. For instance, boiling water is ice cold. Wait a minute. Those things can't be true simultaneously, can they? If one is true, see, the other is false. When we believe things that are mutually exclusive, the only way we can do that is by turning off our brain. Turning off the avenue through which truth comes. Well, how do we do that in Christianity? Well, God is a God of love. All he wants is your love. He loves you so much. He has sent his angels. He has sent his spirit. Ultimately, he sent his son because he loves you that much. But if you refuse to love him back, he'll burn you in hell forever. Wait a minute. When we talked about the law of liberty this morning, can you get people to love you by threatening them? Can you get people to love you by putting guns to their head and telling them, you better love me or I will kill you? So when we teach that God is a God of love, and if we don't love him, he'll burn us in hell... See, those two things are mutually exclusive. They cannot be true at the same time. And the only way to believe that is this. Well, God's ways aren't my ways. He's so much higher than me. I just take that on faith, and I don't think about that. 
which means I've just turned off my brain. If you want to know about my thoughts on hell, come this afternoon at 6 and ask me the question because I would love to tell you, if you think you have some Bible text that would prove that God will burn people in hell, if you think you have some other uh, inspired writings that you think will prove that God will use his power to inflict penalties upon people in hell, bring it this afternoon. I would love to have that discussion because I can assure you God will not use his power to inflict an external penalty upon people to make them pay. You know why? He doesn't have to because the Bible teaches the wages of sin is sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Sin kills. Sin severs from the, from the connection of life. Sin, se- sin separates us from God. All God has to do is, is let go. And if he lets go, we die. Come this afternoon, ask that question. I'd love to have that discussion. How about God is a God of love, but he doesn't give you any free choice. God predestined all who will be saved for salvation and all will be lost for for damnation. You don't have any choice in the matter at all. God is predetermined before it all happened, what would happen? Can those things both be true at the same time? No, and the only way to believe that God is a loving God and doesn't give us freedom is to turn off reason, shut down the avenue through which truth is reaching the mind. Defense against attack number two. Examine your beliefs in light of truth. Examine your beliefs in light of truth and reject anything that requires you not to think. or distorts the truth about God as revealed in Jesus. Attack number one, lies about God. Attack number two, antithetical beliefs. Attack number three, symbolism without meaning. Symbolism without meaning. Uh, God has given us symbols. He tries to teach us. Our minds are in darkness. He's trying to shine light. And so he gives us metaphors. He gives us parables. He gives us symbols to help lead us to a greater light. But we can have our minds shut down if we embrace the symbol as if the symbol itself is true, as if the symbol had some power to heal, as if the symbol had some merit to cleanse, as if the symbol was beneficial to save. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 11, God speaking to Israel in these words, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have enough, I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who is Ask this of you, this trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moon, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. My soul hates them. They have uh, become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Whoa. Who told him to do all those things? Who told him to sacrifice? Who told him to have feast days? Who told him to have Sabbath days? Who told him to come to temple? Who told him to do it all? God. But he hated it. Why? Verse 13, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Stop doing the symbols without understanding what it's designed to teach the mind. And thus, in verse 18 of the same chapter, he says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are a scarlet, they'll be white like snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be made like wool. Do we have trouble doing that in our experience today? Have you ever clung to promises of being washed in the blood, cleansed by the blood? Is there power in the blood? Do we have security in thinking that we are covered by the blood and the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees the blood? 
Are we washed in the blood? Are our sins erased out of the books of heaven by the blood? Or do we actually understand the meaning? When Christ said, unless you eat my flesh or drink my blood, you have no part with me. Was he talking cannibalism? Then when you think about all these blood metaphors I just talked about, are you thinking of the meaning or are you thinking of blood? Do you think Jesus ever says in heaven, stop singing that meaningless song, there's power in the blood. My soul hates it. Are our minds being enlightened? What is the meaning of the blood? The life is in the blood, it says. And when we think of the blood of Christ, then we need to translate that in our minds to the life of Christ. And the life of Christ, he developed on this earth perfect character. And if we partake and eat the flesh and drink the blood, we're opening the heart and trust to partake of Christ's likeness, to have his laws, the, the new covenant experience. I will write my law on your hearts and minds, to be regenerated, to be like Jesus in heart, taking him in to the soul, valuing, caring, and loving him, his methods, his principles. This is what it means to partake of the blood. This is what it means to be covered in the blood. This is what it means to be washed in the blood, to be transformed in the inner man, to be like Jesus. Symbols without meaning darken the mind, turn off the reason, impair the judgment, prevent genuine healing. Defense, defense against attack number three. Search your beliefs for symbols without meaning. And, and there are many that we have that we just throw out. Search your belief for symbols without meaning, pursue the meaning, and substitute the meaning every time you hear or think or read the symbol. Search your beliefs for the symbols, search for the meaning, and substitute the meaning for the symbol. Attack number one, lies about God. Attack number two, antithetical beliefs. Attack number three, symbols without meaning. Attack number four, blind faith. Blind faith. I was watching a televangelist, and on the, as I was cruising the channels, I came across a televangelist, and he was just in the process of talking to his audience, and he was saying, I know that I know that I know that I know. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I wonder what he knows and how he knows it. But he never told. He just knows. And, and, and he said he had faith in what he knows. I read science journals. And in the science journals, they constantly criticize Christians for believing things on faith and not pursuing the evidence. It's like what the little boy said. Mark Twain, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Is that, is that really what faith is? No. Is our, is our faith believing without evidence? Or is our faith believing on the evidence? In this warfare between Christ and Satan, how much truth supports Satan's position? None. Zero. How much truth supports God's position? All of it. So if you are Satan, do you want people thinking, reasoning, and pursuing evidence and truth? Or do you want people believing things without evidence and truth? Okay, we had a president a while back that stood up and said, I did not have relations with that woman. You can take that on faith. You don't need to investigate and ask questions and search for the evidence. Monica comes forward and says, look, I don't really need to say anything at all if you'd be willing to take my, uh, my dress and examine the evidence. If you'll do that, I think it'll speak for itself. See, all the evidence is on God's side. He never asks us to believe without evidence. He's provided the evidence at great expense to himself. He wants us to think. He wants us to pursue the truth. 
God doesn't want us to believe without evidence. I was reading in a Bible study guide, it says, we don't need to have faith to believe the sky is over our head because we can look up and see the sky over our head. We need to have faith to believe in the God beyond the sky because we can't see him. Well, if that's really the true definition of faith, do you think at the second coming, we all meet Jesus face to face, we'll go, Jesus, you know, I used to have faith in you, but now that I see you, I don't have faith in you anymore. Wait a minute. That that definition doesn't work. What about in Hebrews where it says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen? How do we understand that? Well, the word substance, let's do a little word sleuthing. It comes from the Greek word hypostasis. That word is broken into two halves. The first half, hypo, means under or low. And we, you, you've probably heard it in words like hypotensive, low blood pressure, hypoglycemic, low blood sugar. Hypo means low or under. Uh, stasis means standing, take a stand. Translated into Latin, substance, sub as in subway, submarine, subterranean, means under. Stance, take a stance. Translated into English, faith is our under standing of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. As we understand God, his character, his methods, the truth that he's revealed, our confidence, our faith rises as our understanding rises. Does that mean we have to see all the evidences of what is to come to have faith? Imagine you have a child who's in first grade, and while your child's gone to school, you've gone out and bought a present, wrapped that present up, put it in your bedroom closet. When your first grader comes home, you say, Mommy's got a surprise. Daddy's got a surprise. Uh, I bought you a present. It's in the closet. You can go get it. Does your child go? Does your child go based on any physical, tangible evidence or proof of that present? No, they haven't seen the present yet. While they have no evidence or proof of the present, do they have a lifelong evidence and proof of your trustworthiness and your reliability? You see, our faith is not in our heavenly presence. Our presence in the closet, life eternal, crowns of glory, mansions in heaven, new heaven, new earth. All these are our presence. We don't have any proof of them. But our faith is not in the presence. Our faith is in the one who has promised these things. And we have an abundance of evidence of God's existence, his reliability, and his trustworthiness. So our faith in God is not without evidence. It's based upon the evidence that he has given us. And by the way, as your child is heading down the hall to get that present, does your child go down the hall, man, I wonder if there's really going to be something there or not. Or does a child go down the hall skipping gleefully, already experiencing the joy of the present before they actually get to the closet? That is to be our Christian experience. We're already experiencing the joy of the future life because the one who promised it is sure. Blind faith turns off reason. It causes us to form beliefs without evidence. Results in believing nonsense, which darkens the mind and impairs the reason. Refuse to have faith without, without evidence. Defense against attack number four is establish your faith on the evidence, the evidence of God's word, the evidence of Christ's life that he has revealed about his true nature, his true character. Attack number one, lies about God. Attack number two, antithetical beliefs. Attack number three, symbolism without meaning. Attack number four, blind faith. Attack number five, surrendering judgment to others. Michelle was studying her Bible with a co-worker, and often the co-worker would present new truths from the Bible to Michelle. And Michelle would respond with, I don't really believe that. And the co-worker would ask, well, help me understand why you don't believe that. And Michelle would say, well, my grandmother was one of the most godly women I've ever met. She was so tender, so kind, so gracious, so loving, 
And she didn't believe that. I can't believe that she's going to go to hell for not believing that. And if she was good enough for my grandmother, then it must be good enough for me. Was Michelle thinking for herself? No. She had shut down her own thinking. She shut down the avenue. You see, truth can't enter a mind that thinks like that. Well, maybe we don't do it with a grandmother. Maybe we do it with a parent. Maybe we do it with our preacher. Maybe we do it with the conference presidents, the church official body, the 28 Fundamental Beliefs book. Maybe we look to some other authority, some other brain besides our own to draw our conclusions for us. But Isaiah 118, come let us reason together. God asks you to think for yourself. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants. Rather, I call you friends because servants don't understand their master's business. Jesus is inviting us to understand God, his methods, his principles, what he's going through, what he's trying to accomplish, why he does business and how he does business. Romans 14, 5, Paul said, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. And Hebrews 5.14 says that the mature Christian is the one who has developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. We have to think for ourselves. Even if the issue is right, if you are doing it simply because you were told on any subject matter, you've never thought it through, you've never come to your own conclusion on it, you're just doing it because that's what you've always been told, do you realize it's not part of your character? Imagine you brush your teeth because, and the only reason ever is because your mother told you to. You've never thought it through. You've never connected the dots between brushing teeth and, and cavities and healthy gums and so forth and so on. And so you've just done it. And the only reason you've ever had in your mind was, my mom said I should. If that was your only reason ever, do you think you're actually vulnerable to quit? You think you could stop doing that because you have no, it's not part of you. This is true in our spiritual beliefs. If you go to church on Sabbath, and why do you go to church on Sabbath? Well, because my, my mom raised me to. Is it part of your character? Well, because God said it. If God said it, I believe it. That settles it. Really? Is that how God wants us to obey? I no longer call you servants. How do servants obey? Whatever the master says, we'll do. We don't know why, but we'll do what he says. Jesus said, I want you to be friends to understand why. Why do we go to church on Sabbath? What's the reason? He's invited us to understanding friendship. Defense against tact number five, always think for yourself. Always pursue the truth. Think for yourself, pursue the truth. Attack number one, lies about God. Attack number two, antithetical beliefs. Attack number three, symbols without meaning. Attack number four, blind faith. Attack number five, surrendering judgment to others. Attack number six, emotionalism, feelings overruling judgment. James chapter one says, no one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one of us are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil feelings or desires. Our feelings lead us into temptation. Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23 talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Talks about what are the character traits we develop. What our lives and characters will look like when we let the Holy Spirit in. When the Holy Spirit does His work. When He regenerates, recreates us in Christ-likeness. We develop these traits of character. And they are patience, kindness, gentleness, love, meekness. But the, but the last one, the last fruit of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit finishes His work in our life, self-control. When the Spirit comes, we get greater and greater self-governance, self-control. We don't get out of control. We don't get loss of control. We don't fall around on the floor like a fish out of control when the Spirit comes. 
How do we know? Well, we've got the text that I've just given you. What about the evidence? Let's look at the evidence of the people who Christ himself said, the person who Christ himself said had more of the Holy Spirit than anyone else in history. And who was that? John the Baptist. Did you ever see John the Baptist losing his control of himself? No, it didn't happen. How about Jesus, who had more of the Spirit than John? Did Jesus ever fall, fall all over the place out of control? No. Spiritual experiences that have the Holy Spirit at work result in the transformation of character to be like Christ with greater and greater discernment, wisdom, self-governance, and self-control. Well, what do we do with the emotions then? How do they fit into this? How do they come to be part of this? Remember the road to Emmaus. The two men, the two disciples, discouraged, walking along the road. Christ begins to walk with them, but they didn't know who it was him. And he took them through the evidences of Scripture, all the passages that that related to what the Messiah would do and what the Messiah would achieve. And then they said something later. He said, did not our hearts burn within us as he revealed the truth of Scripture to us? You see, there is an aha moment. Have you ever had that experience where you were working on a problem? Maybe it was a math problem. Maybe it was a school problem. Maybe you're trying to figure out some issue. Bible study, trying to understand some enlightenment. And the moment comes where the light goes on. You ever had that moment, the aha moment? I get it now. Doesn't that feel good? Yeah, that feels good. We love those moments. I love those moments. And Satan has tricked many people into pursuing that feeling without ever pursuing the truth going to experiences where they get that good feeling, but they get no enlightenment. They get no truth. They shut down the mind and the avenue for transformation. I'm going to tell you about spiritualism. It's not on your handouts. You're going to have to write this on the side or on the back, but I'm going to give you a a common thread that runs through all forms of spiritualism. If you look for this common thread, you can identify it anywhere, whether it's voodoo, whether it's witchcraft, whether it's tarot cards, whether it's palm reading, whether it's astrology, whether it's uh, Ouija boards or seances or spiritualism masquerading as the Holy Spirit in the churches. Common thread. The pursuit of knowledge without the use of reason or the investigation of evidence. The pursuit of knowledge without the use of reason or the investigation of evidence. Think about it. Why does somebody go to the tarot card reader, the palm reader, the the, read their horoscope and the astrology? Because they want to know something. They want to know whether they should take this job, whether they should move to this city, whether they should date this guy. They want to know something. Why do they go to the seances? Because they want to know information from the other side. They want to know something. They want information. But they're turning off reason and they're not investigating the revealed evidence that God has given. And thus, when you see spiritual experiences occurring in churches that have messages, knowledge coming without the investigation of biblical evidence and the use of reason, you can be sure that this is the spirit masquerading, the false spirit masquerading as the spirit of God. Religions dominated by emotionalism close the mind to truth. Defense against attack number six reason for yourself, examine the the evidence and truth, choose what judgment determines is best. So reason, examine, choose what judgment determines is best, and then stop activities which inflame emotions at the expense of reason. Disengage from activities which inflame emotions at the expense of reason. 
It doesn't mean we don't have emotions, but our emotions should follow as then the biblical guide. As light comes on, our minds are transformed, we should have an emotional experience, but not at the expense of reason. Reason should be ennobled. Conscience should be cleansed. Our discernment should be growing. Our ability to think and reason should become Christ-like. And it's a powerful, wonderful emotional experience. But experiences that pursue that emotional feeling without the transforming, enlightening process of the reason shut down the avenues for truth. Attack number one, lies about God. Attack number two, antithetical beliefs. Attack number three, symbols without meaning. Attack number four, blind faith. Attack number five, surrendering judgments to others. Attack number six, emotionalism, feelings overruling judgment. Attack number seven, sinful living. Sinful living. Violations of God's laws, laws of love, laws of liberty, laws of worship, laws of health. We violate his laws. We violate the laws of health. We go out and we abuse our bodies with all types of of substances. We damage our brain and make it harder for us to recognize and respond to truth, shutting down avenues for which truth can reach us. And when we're high, when when we're in an altered mental state, we can't think clearly. Truth can't reach our minds while we're in these states. Violations of laws of health shut down the avenues of truth. When we exploit others, when we act selfishly, when when we take advantage of other people and hurt them, the Holy Spirit will be there to convict us of guilt. And what, this, is, this is appropriate guilt. Guilt that occurs when we've actually violated God's law and harmed another person. We don't like guilt. Guilt's a bad feeling. So we all want to make it go away. And when the guilt is appropriate, there's two ways to make it go away. There's the healthy way, which is through repentance and restoration. A transformation of heart, reconciliation with God, renewal of the inner man, and the guilt goes away. But there's another way that you can make guilt go away, and that's through denial and distortion. Denial and distortion, we can make guilt go away. And have you ever heard the phrase, he's bending the truth, she's twisting the truth? Truth cannot be bent, and truth cannot be twisted. We can only bend our minds around the truth. Imagine a telephone pole perfectly straight, and I hold up a lens between you and the pole. And now as you view the pole through the lens, the pole appears bent. Have we bent the pole? No, the pole is still straight. We've just bent our, view, bent our view of the pole. People who have violated God's laws, laws of love, laws of liberty, who have taken advantage of others, who won't take ownership, who won't accept their responsibility, who won't repent, the only way they can make the guilt go away is that it wasn't me, it was that woman you gave me. It was her fault. I didn't do anything wrong. And the mind is being bent. The conscience is being seared. The reason is being warped. And the more and more of this they do, they take that warped mind with them everywhere. And if you ever talk to people that are not rational, they're not reasonable. Imagine having a conversation. You're looking at the telephone pole and it's perfectly straight. They're looking through the lens. Will you ever convince them that the pole is straight as long as they're looking through that lens? No. And what is it that helps straighten out the mind? It is the truth. The truth has to be brought in. The truth has to be accepted. The truth has to be applied. And as we do that, the mind begins to heal. The warp begins to unbend. Defense against attack number seven. Live in harmony with the laws of love, liberty, worship, and health. Repent and restore when we've hurt others. Repent and restore. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, they are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against 
the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Satan is attacking our minds, our ability to think, our ability to reason. He is attacking to shut down the avenue through which God's truth, God's grace, God's love will enter our minds, heal our hearts, regenerate us and restore us into Christ's likeness. We must know the battlefield. We must know and use God's weapons of truth, love, and freedom. And we must understand Satan's attacks and demolish them.